at the end of the book, because we're kind of seeing that real time here in the world where you have this common thing that's afflicting everybody and the heads of the states, for lack of a better term, are trying to deal with the situation from different perspectives, but they all want the same thing. I've been waiting for my moment And I've been howling at the moon Hey there, this is Stephanie from StephFuccio.com with another episode of Geopets Books. We are traveling to space today to chat with a fellow American podcaster about their experiences with the book Leviathan Wakes. I will tell you more about him and the book in a moment, but first I want to mention one thing. Geopets Books, as you can guess, is not published terribly often. We're doing some changes with the entire Geopets podcasting network. And that's what I want to mention here is that we have an entire network of shows, including uh, Geopets Language, Geopets Podcasting, Geopets Coffee, Geopets Online, Geopets Reflections, and Geopets Now Pod Pomo. They all try to tap into our worldliness, shall we say, in different ways, as you can guess from their titles. And although we won't be publishing Geopets books very often. We do have a few episodes coming up in the next few months, and we will have other Geopats books coming out in the future. It just won't be in a set schedule. So if you like the theme of the Geopats network and how we view things through a global lens, then please do feel free to come over to any of the other Geopats network shows. You can find those at stephfuccio.com forward slash podcasts. Or you can just go into your podcast app on your phone and type in G-E-O-P-A-T-S, hit enter, and you should see all seven of them in there now. If you don't, do let me know and I will make sure to get them into that app that you're using. Today, this is a conversation with one of my favorite podcasters who goes by the name Stargate Pioneer or SP for short. So SP is a science fiction and space aficionado, comic book universe fan, amateur drone pilot adventurer, and hobby podcast mentor and advocate. I first uh, came into contact with SP watching and listening to uh, Better Podcasting, which is a podcast about podcasting to get very meta, where they live stream the recording and then put it out as a podcast. And fun fact, his partner in crime on Better Podcasting will be on a Geopets podcasting episode soon. In this episode, we are just talking about Leviathan Wakes, not the other books connected to the series. Oh, having said that, The Expanse Season 5 came out recently, and although I had only seen two episodes of the first season, I was very, very willingly dragged into <laughs> watching the entire season in one weekend, and wow, is it good. I think I need to go back and actually watch the other four seasons now. We'll see. The Expanse TV show is the TV version of the book series that Leviathan Wakes started. In this conversation, we discuss the amazing characters, space settings, which include Mars, the Belt, and Future Earth, and geopolitical themes in the book. But since we are obsessed with geopatness, we also connect the characters and their stories to geopatness in general. What this means is how living off of your home planet compares to living away from your home country. We dip in and out of that topic quite a bit. Without further ado, let's blast off into space. I've been waiting for my moment. I've been howling at the moon. 
Thank you so much, SB, for coming on the Geopets Podcast Book Show. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. And you actually enticed me to read a book I've been wanting to read for quite some time. Oh, interesting. See, I thought you had read it already and you were rereading. No, this was a case where I had seen a visual medium and wanted to go back and check out the novelization. Oh, very cool. I had not realized that. Well, before we go any further, let's tell people what we're talking about today. What book are we going to chat about? We're going to talk about the 2011 book Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. The book was actually penned by two people, Daniel Abrams Abraham, and uh, Ty Frank, and they collaborated to make the Expanse series. And now that I've said the Expanse, a lot of people are like, oh, I know what he's talking about. It was a show on sci-fi on the Skippy Network in uh, what year did it start? 2000. And 15, and it did three seasons there, and then Sci-Fi canceled it, and it was brought over to Amazon Prime. So a lot of people know it because it's now on Amazon Prime, but it is a eight-book series. It's planned for nine books, and it deals in a couple of hundred years in the future. And the reason that I wanted to talk about it on this podcast is because... You're talking about uh, the geopaths or worldwideness of culture and society. And this actually did a great job of looking into how the society and cultures would propagate into the solar system once humankind starts moving out in the solar system. So if you think of SpaceX and wanting to go to the moon and colonize Mars and then what happens a couple of hundred years after that. This is taking a realistic look at that. And I got to tell you, a little disappointed in the book versus the first couple of seasons of the TV show, because the TV show actually did a better job of showing the culture and society than the book did. Yes, I'm so glad you said that. But before we go into the disappointment, let's step back on Earth and talk about your geographicalness. Can you give us an overview of where you're from, where you are, and where you have been in the world? Well, I've been all over in the world, but right now I find myself in the good old Midwest of the United States. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and I currently live Me in... Me too! Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. No born in Brooklyn. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, sorry. Please keep going. My dad was in the uh, service for post-Vietnam, or actually in the middle of Vietnam. And um, my mom, of course, lived there at uh, a base, Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, and that's where I was born. And uh, shortly after I was born, my dad finally got done with his tour, and we moved back as a family to Minnesota. That's where my parents were from, so I grew up in Minnesota. I can't say born and raised, but it's basically what it was, and I was in Minnesota, and then I uh, got to join the the world travel once I joined the workforce after I got my degree in rocket science, and I got to go all over, which is really neat to be able to travel all over the world. Now, I never really stayed anywhere for a long time, but I've been to uh, Europe, I've been to Asia, I've been to a lot of places, but it's rarely been longer than a week that I've been somewhere. Let's go back to the disappointment then. It's interesting that you said that the book was a disappointment because for some reason I had it in my head that you had read these and you wanted to reread them. 
And so when I was reading the book, okay, one, I was doing an audio book because I have a lot of walking time right now, <laughs> thanks to the quarantine. So I had the 20 hour unabridged audio book and I struggled about 10 hours until about 10 hours in, I really struggled to keep going. And I would put like time, sleep timing things on it to make sure I'd make it to the next hour. And then I watched the first episode of the first season because I haven't seen any of the the TV shows. And I thought, oh, this is so much better. I should just cheat and watch the entire season. It's interesting you say about halfway in, you were having trouble because halfway in is about where season one ends. So the book covers the plot of the seasons one and season two. However, none of the geopolitical stuff, which normally I'm bored to tears about, but they do it so extraordinarily well. And it's so the actors are just portraying it so well that it really becomes an integral part of the the culture and society that you're dealing with. So you got Earth, which is what where we live for 200 years into the future, two, 300 future. There's no specific time date given with the books, but I've heard in research that we're talking about 2350-ish. So 2350, the year. And Earth has changed. It's more populated. You got about 30 billion people there, which I guess is low considering current population trends. But when you consider the humanity has exploded into the cosmos, it's probably a good guessment. So you got 30 billion people on Earth, which is more than double what we have now. And things are more populated. Matter of fact, there's a scene that I had to go back and watch a couple of times where it shows Montana and it's 22 acres of farmland in Montana. And there's a wall around this 22 acres and there's just city all around it. So that just tells you Montana, one of the biggest skyscapes in all of the earth. And all of a sudden it's so populated that it's basically midtown Manhattan right outside the wall there. And you have ecological things that have happened you have the rise of of the sea global warming is depicted in the intro that you see every episode and it is still the biodome of humanity it's trying to be protected because you have all this water you have all this oxygen you have all this plant life and it's just a very special place as we go into the rest of the solar system. So you got Earth and then you've got Mars, which is a barren place, but they're trying to terraform that. And you don't really see that in the book at all. You get to see it a little bit in season two of The Expanse, but they're trying to terraform it. So they have all these terraforming stations, which is going to take 100, 200 years. I think that's a little bit optimistic. I think you're talking a longer time than that to terraform an entire planet. But they've got terraforming operations going on which means they're very technologically advanced because they have to be. They're Spartan, they're really rugged people, and they're really technological mindset of uh, we have to protect Mars because it's even more fragile than the Earth. And then you've got a lot of the outer rim. You've got the asteroid belt, you've got uh, moons of the giant planets, and on top of all that, there's a subplot in here of the Mormons creating this generational huge ship, which is meant to go to even another solar system. And the reason, which you don't really get in the TV show, at least I didn't pick it up in the TV show, but I did pick it up in the book. The reason is because there's population control efforts underway in the solar system because 
you can only have so many people with all the resources. So the Mormons as a church have decided to build the biggest ship ever and go to another solar system so that they can actually have as many kids as they really want. And it's not regulated by the government. So it's interesting where all of these realistic things, you can think of all these realistic things. And I believe you said you were just in China. I know they have population uh, control efforts in place in China. They used to. Okay. So they used to. So it's a real thing in humanity history. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The one China policy, I think it was, I think it eased up or stopped completely two years ago. It was just after we moved back there. So, and now I think it, two, it might actually be two children policy. But even during the one child policy, if you had enough mind not picking up for X, Y, and Z, you could, you could have not that child not being funded and possibly a fine. There's another sci-fi series that I've read by Arthur C. Clarke. It's the 2001 A Space Odyssey series. And the third book in the series goes into how much money that this wealthy, I think it was billionaire at the time, probably be trillionaire nowadays in terms of how much money is uh, out there. In the, I think, eighth or ninth kid of this guy was the most expensive kid ever on the face of the planet because of how much money that they had to pay to actually have this kid. That's the thing I was trying to wrap my head around once I finished the book is there's so many different things to talk about. <laughs> it's like, how are we going to tackle this puppy? Because even just talking about the money and family planning and all that kind of stuff, they, there's a lot of mirroring of current day society in it. I mean, it is sci-fi. That is a norm in sci-fi. But there's also tinges of things that aren't necessarily already. Like the belters alone are earthlings that, well, I mean, their heritage is earthlings, right? But they were born and raised and, and live on the belt, right? There's a combination. There's some people that have migrated there from Mars or, or Earth out to the belt. And there's people that have been born and raised there. And the people that are born and raised there find it impossible to go back to Earth because their bone structure was never developed enough to exist in a what we call gravity, you know, 1G and so they just can't do that without assistance, without medicine. And some people just will die once they come here just because their bones are too fragile. And that was an interesting uh, geopolitical thing that was brought forth in the book. So there's a character named Fred Johnson who is listed as the butcher of Anderson Station. What happened was they had this outpost in the belt, in the asteroid belt, that was exactly opposite of where Circe's is in the asteroid belt. And we'll get to Circe's later, but there was just the station that was a port for people that were mining asteroids on the opposite end of the belt. And there were kids there that were getting developed delayed or have issues with development because of low oxygen. And there was new afflictions that came because of that. And then the workers struck, they actually had a strike to try to get the company to give them better living conditions and, and better uh, oxygen and, and stuff like that. And they ended up basically having a mutiny, and then the military was called in, and there was a big fight, which was not really depicted other than an explosion in the television series. And in the the book, it was a little bit more graphic with uh, wall-to-wall or hall-to-hall fighting. And... 
uh, he was labeled as the butcher of Anderson Station, and then he retired from the military at that point in time and became a belt, a big belter advocate at that point in time. So you have this sort of thing going on where humanity is a balance between corporate profits and humanity's well-being, and you're really living in a harsh environment within asteroids themselves, within on planets that don't have atmospheres that are conducive for people to breathe and in spaceships, which may or may not have gravity depending on what kind of drive that you have. And then the transit time between here, it's not like you have Amazon one day delivery. It's going to take months or years to get from point A to point B at some point in time. Yeah, there was so much going on that I wanted to just chalk up just to be a mirroring of, of different class issues and different economic issues and different like company greed and things like that. But then because the Belchers and the Martians were essentially earthlings went elsewhere part of me was struggling i'm like well why are why is there all this bias against Belters, or why are they treated so badly if they're just earthlings but just not right now they're not there now like there was there's so much there was a lot of parallel but then there were some differences it's not just immigrants it is people that have gone somewhere that need the support of their home world think of i guess the best example would be the very early people in the, like the 1500s that came to the Americas and the 1600s that came to uh, what is now the United States, the Caribbean area and from Europe where they had to take everything off their back. Matter of fact, a lot of them dis disassembled their ships in order to have wood in order to make the dwellings that they needed to, in order to survive here. I think we're going to see a lot of that as we start colonizing. If, Humanity eventually starts colonizing places like Mars. And because of that, you're at a, a disadvantage because you just don't have everything that you used to in your original society. But there are things going on in your original society that you just don't want to deal with. In uh, America, it could have been anything from uh, profiteering to uh, religious freedom to just wanting land and power. You know, land was power in the uh, mid-thousands, and uh, the Americas had a lot of it. Now, the difference between the Americas and Mars or the asteroid belt is there was an indigenous people in the Americans. There was not an indigenous exactly. people or a ecosystem in Mars or the asteroid belt that could support humanity. So in that, it's a little bit different. From what I understand, the people that ended, the Earthlings that ended up going to Mars were like the super smart, super elite, super rich. Did I read that right, or was I putting a class lens on this that doesn't exist? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that. I think there's a little bit of uh, you have to afford, be able to afford to go do that. But eventually, it became just more of a hardened elite. It would be like somebody from. I don't know, the Vikings from Scandinavia or the Icelanders or whatever. So you're living in a harsher environment and you just become harsher as a people in order to survive there. Should we attack Mars or the belt? In, in either of those cases, is it harsher than discriminatory environment on Earth now? It's interesting in the book that they bring up the OPA, which is this union, basically, of um, mafia is the best way to put it, in the belt. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to fight for their political equalness. So for hundreds of years, it's been Mars and Earth that have been uh, supporting and uh, 
survival of the asteroid belt. And in the OPA, what they want is they're saying, okay, we're developed enough as a society that we want to control our own destinies. A lot like in the American Revolutionary War time frame. So that's, if you're looking at a historical context, that's probably close to it. You are talking about some imperialism that's going on as well, because all these places are territories of companies on Earth. And that's another thing that's really not brought forth in the book. It is a little bit through the company of Protogen, but not really in terms of uh, a totality. There's a lot of corporations that are really running planets. So one of the main characters, Miller, he actually works as a policeman for one of the companies on Circes, which is the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt. It comprises about 25% of all the mass in the asteroid belt. And the important thing about Circes is that it's spelled, it's spelled by the way, if you don't know, C-E-R-E-S, and it has 25% of its mass is water, which is more water than the Earth has. So it's a very important piece of rock out there in the asteroid belt, especially for the expansion of humanity. And this company is there uh, because it has mined Circes for water, which it probably transported to places like Mars and maybe even the Earth in some places. And now it's this big trade hub, but it's lost its primary uh, natural resource. So think of a gold rush in California and then you run out of gold. What happens there? That's kind of what happened to Circes. And this company then sends these ships out to the asteroid to mine for more water, and they bring it back for Circes and for other places as well, like Mars. Mars is a big consumer of goods because, well, it needs a lot of natural resources in order to terraform. So I do believe that between the Earth's needs for precious minerals and Mars's need for terraforming, that the asteroid belt is just being farmed for the for those things. And the OPA is saying, no, 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 wait, wait. We have these big societies now. We have these moons in the outer limit, which really, it doesn't go into the, the book doesn't go into the moons too much in the first book here. And then you have these big asteroid societies, and we're enough to run ourselves. We can be our own nation. And so they're trying to stand up. However... There is no unified government. It's not like these places have elected a mayor or a governor or something like that. So what you have is a bunch of mafia heads that are infighting in order to be the new leader of the belt or OPA or whatever they call it. I mean, when I first started living overseas, first I backpacked, but then when I actually started working and living, I was a stereotypical English and Oh my gosh. I, I don't want to compare that to people that are working in labor and really, really evangelical the belters were. But there were definitely a lot of false promises. There were a lot of companies that would say one thing and do another. And then you'd be halfway around the world, disconnected from everybody who could help you. And you'd end up just putting up with really stupid, and I wouldn't say unsafe, but not great conditions. 
but because we were spread like the English teaching professionals, let's just say teachers are spread out all over the world and not fully fluent in the language that we're in. We're kind of like discombobulated mess, slightly similar to OPA, <laughs> you know, it's just, we're all over the place. Like they would never treat the local population like that because we kind of flew in and said, we'll do with anything we want to be. It was, I don't know. That's where my brain went a little bit. But the, the main characters like Miller and Holden and even Naomi, well, no, 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 Naomi is a belter. Miller and Holden, they were both born on, and on Earth, right? Born and raised. I want to say Miller was actually born, uh, now I'm getting confused between the series and the novelization, but, and I say novelization, actually the novel was actually written first, but in the novel, I got the impression that Miller was an Earther as well, or maybe I got confused with maybe his partner was Earther, uh, but yeah, in the series, Miller is born, I can't remember where he was born, but I think it was on Circe's. I think he's a lifer of Circe's, but he had bone therapy to regulate his his growth. So his bone structure was a little bit better than your standard belter. Holden, on the other hand, he was from Montana, and he was from a, a polygamist family of eight parents, and all their genetic material went into him. So it's a true parentage. He, he's a child of eight parents. I don't even know what to say, but I just was trying to think about how that would even be possible. <laughs> yeah. A couple hundred years in the Genetics future. In the future, I suppose. Yeah. Hey, Steph here. I'm just popping in because I'd like you to know something about the StephFuccio.com world. Uh, I have a new newsletter that comes out weekly. And it's more than, as you can guess from the name of it, stephfuccio.com. It's more than just one podcast. It's more than the podcast network. It also talks about my creation process for everything that I'm involved in. It talks about pod rev day, podcast review day, a online podcast review sharing event on Twitter, review a podcast review event on Twitter that we do every month. It also includes my publications. It also includes my publications and also what I read and what inspires me and some other things like that. It's a quick read. It's under five minutes and it is every week. It keeps me accountable for the projects that I'm working on and hopefully it includes some inspiration for you in your own creative projects. You can sign up for the newsletter at stephfuccio.com. That's, that's S-T-E-P-H-F-U-C-C-I-O.com. Any page on that website will have a sign up. Let's get back into the belt. One of the interesting things that you brought up in your analogy there for your corporation is communication and communication times. And that's what you're dealing with in the solar system where you don't have instantaneous communication. If you watch something like Star Trek, you have subspace communications, you're able to get those instant messages across. However, this takes a little bit more realistic approach, whereas if you send a video message, it will get to somebody in hours and they will respond and then get back to you in hours. So not only do you have the months or year-longs transit times, you also have a delay in communication. So it's not like you can go to work 9 to 5, send an email at 9 o'clock, and expect somebody to hit you back at 10 o'clock. You're talking, you send an email out, and then maybe three, four, five days later, you get an email back. That's a really, really good point. Like, we're six hours apart on Earth right now, but yeah, those 
those different stations, Earth and the belt and, and Mars, that would take a lot longer than that. I hadn't thought about it. Even when you're talking about communication back and forth to the moon, it is delayed a few seconds. Which one do you think was a stronger pull? Because I kept putting people into their kind of population baskets. Do you think it was more of the race struggles or more of the class struggles? Or was it just a combination of the two? I don't know. There was, there's so much happening at once. And it's amazing because the book didn't feel overwhelming. But when I was trying to talk about it with my husband, I was kind of searching for a way to do that. Like it was, what was stronger, race or class struggle? I don't necessarily think race was anything here. I think there was people that were basically typecast because of race into different roles in the series, but you really didn't see that in the novelization. I think it's more class driven in everything. And also the series does follow basically shipboard people with the exception of Miller, I guess Miller. So this book has a lot of everything. It, I haven't mentioned it before. It was nominated for a couple of awards back in 2012. It was written and, and published in 2011. It came up for a couple of awards. It didn't win the Hugo Award or the Locus Award, but it was nominated for both. So it means that it was a pretty good book when it came out. And now that the series is out, it's even better than it was when you just had the one book. But you just had this one book out and you had this mystery Miller's the mystery part. They're trying to figure out what's going on. You have Holden in this action adventure going on. And then you have this subtext of this alien mysterious thing, which gets you into the sci-fi version. And we don't see the resolution of what that thing is in this book or even in series one and two. You start to see it at the very end of season two, but you're not really sure what it is. So if you're watching or reading this and you just get suckered in you want to know more yes you will get answers to a lot of your questions as things progress but because you have a diversity of things going on and you're following the these people that are traveling throughout the solar system you're following a certain class you're not really getting into what is going on at the locations like I said, the series does a much better job. You see a brothel and you have one of the main characters, Amos, who's asking, do they treat you well here? And he divulges that he grew up in a brothel and that he learned a lot and he learned a lot about different places and how they treat you. And he's very loyal to the people that treat him well because of it. And you have all these miners in Eros who you kind of see because... In, in both the series and the novelization you see because they're evacuating and, and they're being used as a huge science experiment. And you see that it's basically the corporation treating them like cattle. So I think classes, if, if you're talking about treating an entire town or entire city in Eros, which is another asteroid, by the way, in the asteroid belt, looks like a big potato, by the way. And it's the second biggest rock in the asteroid belt. And that's what the importance of Eros is, as well as it having a lot of really nice minerals. It doesn't go into it in the book or in the movie, but it has like 20 billion tons of gold, 20 billion tons of, of platinum, and about 20 billion tons of water on it. So it's an important piece of rock out there as well. And that is why there's a station on Eros in the book. And 
you have all these people being treated like cattle, basically, which is really a class situation, I would think. I would, you know, the Boer War, maybe? Uh, are you familiar with the Boer Wars? The Boer Wars in South Africa? Well, it was it was fought between the British Empire and and two of the Boer states, and Boer is B O E R. And I just got the feeling that this was a very similar sort of thing, where you had you know the imperialism coming in and, and fighting off the the locality. So, if you're asking if race or class is a bigger issue, I think class is a huge issue in here, and I don't think, and unless I'm mistaken, I don't think race is an issue. Did you think that race was an issue? There weren't that many characters from Mars, if I remember right, but there definitely were Earthers and Belters. And I did feel that Belters were treated differently, joked about more, and just kind of like the Earthers were just kind of like, I'm not sure what to do with you yet, even though it had been clearly a while that they had together. I felt like there was still a bit of, huh, not sure how to connect yet kind of thing. And it could have been a, a, a subtext that I was picking on, on, but there's there's something there's something there. All you really get from Mars in this one novel is the Doniger. That's really all you get in the fact that they have the Rasanati from the Doniger. Was Alex from Mars too? He was a Martian. Actually, he was an Earther that went to Mars at one point in time. He was part of the Martian Navy and got out, and his family situation gets explored later on. He was married. He does have a kid. Uh, he does still have his wedding ring on, but it is clear in the future of what's going on with his relationship. And it's kind of sad and kind of cool. So all these main characters that were on the cant to start out with, the uh, the ship that was blown up that started this odyssey for Holden and his band uh, is you have Alex, you have Holden, Jim Holden, you have Amos and you have Naomi. And they're the four characters that you get to, to uh, follow around. And you have poor Shep that, you know, something happens to Shep at the beginning that uh, they always refer back to Shep. It's, it's like this um, character that, you lose in scene one that everybody goes back to when you get to the end of this nine book odyssey sort of thing. So Shep keeps on, his name keeps on coming up. The poor Shep, he was a medic that uh, came to an untimely end and everybody's like, Oh, poor Shep throughout the entire thing. But you have this, these, these four characters and they're basically ship born characters. And these ship born characters take you through the entire solar system and the odyssey, the plot that's going on And Miller eventually joins them and you're seeing the adventure and society in the book from their eyes and not unfortunately from the eyes of people that are on the ground. You mentioned earth in the television series. They do a great job in season one of bringing earth and geopolitics into it. And in season two, you see a lot more of Mars. Like you just see the Doniger in the book or in season one for all intents and purposes in the television show in season two of the television show, you get a lot of more Mars and the creators of the television series said plainly, we had to bring a lot of these characters forward in the series just because it made more sense. And honestly, it made the story a lot better to follow around. And I won't say I was disappointed 
in in its entirety with the book because the book is good, but it just wasn't as good as the television series. It might be one of the best sci-fi works of all time. I struggled up until Miller and Holden. And for some reason, for me, that's when it clicked. I mean, so much so that, again, like five or six hours into the 20-hour book, I sat down and watched the first episode of the first season just to kind of get a visualization and a connection to the characters because I was not getting that from the book. The writing is incredible. There are phrases in there that I wish I had tagged, but I was, you know, out and it was cold and I wasn't, I wasn't taking my gloves off, but, but I really wanted to go, oh man, that was written really well. Like the writing's great, how they switch between characters is really, but for some reason in that beginning part, I wasn't getting enough characteristics from my, of the, of the characters that we met. I wasn't getting enough information on them where I felt like I was getting them. And I feel like even just that first episode gave me a lot of that background and a lot of that visualness and a lot of that, the, the human side of it that I didn't feel like I was getting. But once Miller and Hilda met, it kind of took off for me. And I didn't mean that as a pun, but it might be. <laughs> so there's probably a couple of reasons for that. First of all, I don't know if you've done research into how the, the book was actually written or not, but Daniel and Ty each took a character and they ran with it. So at the beginning of the book, you had Daniel writing for one character, you had Ty writing for the other character, and you had chapters that went back and forth they were labeled Miller or Holden as they went forward and that was because they were written by Daniel or Ty respectively in the middle of the book you get the climax of season one in the television show and you have the two characters coming together and being able to come to that mid plot climax and things start to take off because they start to take off story-wise there as well and you get the two of them together for the rest of the book. There was one time specifically when I was stopping the book because I was at the end of a certain amount of time that I had. And it was just when I thought Miller died. And I was like, how is that possible? They can't kill him this quick. There's so much more to do. And of course, as soon as I pick up again, then he's being resuscitated and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, no, the connection between those two is interesting. Do you think that Holden and... Miller kind of mirror the two authors? Do you think they're pulling in their own personalities? I haven't read or seen enough of Daniel Ortai to actually answer that, but it would be interesting. I think if you're writing a character, if you're the author of a character and it's the main character of the story, I think you put a lot of yourself into it because you're trying to write it from the hero perspective and you're always the hero of your own story. So from that perspective, I would say yes, but I actually don't know. So. <laughs> You had mentioned that the the company, the greedy companies were a huge issue that struck you as you were reading the book. And before that, when you were watching the TV show, were there any other uh, geopolitical issues that uh, were very strong for you while you were reading it? Well, a good way to think about this in terms of storytelling is actually one of the authors worked with J.R.R. Martin for Game of Thrones. So you have the author's bringing forth this as the Game of Thrones of sci-fi. So you do see a lot of that in the TV series. You see the personal struggles that heads of state really go through in terms of trying to do what's best for their entity, their country, so to speak. And, and also it's interesting at the end of the book, at the end of Leviathan Wakes, what, 
really transpires because we're kind of seeing that real time here in the world where you have this common thing that's afflicting everybody and the heads of the states for lack of a better term i don't really know what to call a head of a world but the, the heads of states are getting together and they're trying to deal with the situation they're trying to deal with the situation from different perspectives but they all want the same thing and they don't agree all the time but they eventually start the to bring the plot along because they're all doing things in the effort to uh, take care of this challenge take care of this issue and it really becomes a solar system wide issue probably for the first time in hundreds of years and and you see that in you see the real time at least locally, uh, news feeds that are coming in and what is going on where. Uh, the book does get into season two of the TV show, and it gets into a solar system-wide war that's ongoing. And the book brings it forth that this war was instituted to cover up what was actually going on in Eros. So they wanted uh, a wag the dog sort of thing to, to happen. And it's unfortunate, but... It It's happened in history where you have heads of state doing one thing to cover up what they're doing on the other hand. And uh, at the end, you just get to a point where everybody is seeing the results of everything and seeing what's really been going on. And you have a lot of oh crap moments. It's not really stated in the book. It's in the epilogue. You, you see what's going on. In, I love epilogues, by the way, but... You see epilogue, in the epilogue uh, the result of what has happened, and you have massive power shifts. And I think that happens in, in real time, but it's interesting that the people in the respective places, whether it's the belt, Earth, Mars, wherever, it's interesting that they are going along with this and like, okay, whew, you know, we've gotten through this, and now we can get on with our lives, but then what is that? And that's what the epilogue is about a little bit. I wasn't prepared for it to just be an additional chapter. I thought it was going to be a reflection on the book. In some ways, I when I realized it was just an extra chapter, I was kind of kicking and screaming, like, I don't really need this right now. <laughs> it felt like a wrap-up that wasn't needed because I knew there were seven more books coming. What was your reaction to the episode? I think at the time that they wrote it in 2011, they were like, oh, crap, we got to set this up. There's going to be more. There's more to this story. <laughs> And they had to slip this chapter in, and it, it might have been they got it to the publisher, and the publisher's like, eh, you guys got more to this, right? Yeah, well, this ends it. This There's nothing more <laughs> here, and you have to get it to a point where we can we we can get it. I mean, Holden and Miller saved the day, and everything is great at the end of Leviathan Wakes, but then you get to the epilogue, and you see that everything is not what it seems, and that there is more to it. In the television series, uh, you get kind of where it is at the end of season two, but you know that there's more to it. The, season two doesn't resolve exactly what's going on. It continues the story. I think of it in terms of of episodes, like season one is an episode. Season two is an episode. You can think of it in those terms, but you can also think of these in terms of like movies, I guess, or something like that. But I'm so glad they took the time to actually have a 10 or 13 episode season versus doing this as a movie because you get so much more in it. It's basically a 10 hour movie or whatever 10 hours turns out to be on television. 
and it's so cool, and, and I like that a lot. So the epilogue sets up the rest of the series, whereas the end of the book does not, and I could see that. And as far as the television series, you just know it's there. And since I've seen three of the seasons of the television series, the epilogue didn't bug me at all. But if I was just reading the book, I compl- I got to the epilogue listening to it, because I listened to it on the audiobook as well. I got to the end of the epilogue, and I was like, what? This is totally not what the book was about. Well, we've talked a lot about the men, but there are some pretty interesting and strong women in this book, too. And... Um... The one that I'm still trying to wrap my head around is the woman that we open the book with, which is Julia Mao. And we kind of, excluding the epilogue, we kind of end with her as well. (laughs) What was your impression of her and her role in this complicated mess that they were in? So as I was watching season one of The Expanse, I, I was just had this, and they meant for this, I hadn't read the book, I didn't know the history behind it, but Julie Mao was just this huge mystery of what's going on with her. And the series opens, actually the book opens with the same scene where you have Julia Mao in the ship, really struggling for her life and trying to go from there. But she really has stumbled on to this intersolar system conspiracy, and it has to deal with her dad. So she's personally involved, and yet she is really just trying to figure things out and then make it better and solve it and not bring it to the point of what happened at Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe's another asteroid, by the way. And then they call it the Phoebe plague, I believe, or the Phoebe virus or something like that. And Eros. So she's trying to have that not happen, and yet she becomes an instrument of it, unfortunately. But she's not done at the end of the book, at the end of season two. Her character kind of is still around. So she's a very strong young woman. She does some amazing things. She gets uh, her her belts in, in martial arts to be able to uh, defend herself and be a force out there. She's a, ra- a spaceship racer. Uh, she is part of the OPA as kind of a smuggler mafia person. And she's doing this all in the bigger scheme or the bigger strategy to try to deal with this thing that her father has sent in motion. This is Steph popping in again to let you know one more thing about the Geopets Podcast Network. We have a Buy Me a Coffee page. What is that? It is an online tip jar where you can buy a virtual coffee. It's not a real one. I have I have those here. I'm good. I'm good. But I could use some more funds to help the network run smoothly. If you would like to help us in a small way of buying us a coffee, that would be fantastic. All you need to do is go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Geopats, G-E-O-P-A-T-S. Whatever you do, however you do it, I appreciate your support with helping keeping the network going so that we can produce all of these otherworldly products and give me the opportunity to have really bad jokes whenever I want. Okay, that's enough. Let's go back to Mars. A weird thing I picked up on towards the end of the book is that she's the only character that really expresses wanting to go back to Earth. She has moments where she's like, I want to go home. And she, yeah, was leading the 
I don't know, was it a spaceship? It was Eros a spaceship at that point? Because they were talking about it, it turning from not a planet, but a, a an entity into a spaceship because it was then. Yeah, that's a holy crap moment where you have an asteroid that's actually propelling itself. So yeah, everybody's like, oh crap, what, did you just see that? Oh my gosh, what happens? Yeah, how did it, how did it move? Yeah. <laughs> that just doesn't happen sort of thing. Uh, so... So yeah, you have Julie Mao in in the middle of that. You have a Naomi, and the TV series, by the way, has some phenomenal characters, female characters as well. Uh, you have the head or one of the heads of the UN, uh, Christian Aversario, who's the UN Undersecretary of Executive Administration. She's basically the person that's getting everything done for the UN. She's amazing. And then in season two, you have a Martian Marine that comes along, and, and she is awesome as well. Frankie Adams is the actress that pay, plays Bobby Draper, who is a um, Martian gunny sergeant, basically. And she, all these characters do amazing things and are involved in it uh, amazingly. You, you also have a doctor that's involved as well, Elizabeth Mitchell plays the doctor that's um, actually not, is she a doctor or is she, I can't remember if she's the head of the uh, religious sector. Or not. In any event, you don't see these characters in Leviathan Wakes. You see them in the series and they come out later in the books, but you just don't see them in, in this first book. And it, it's a little bit unfortunate that you don't see them in the books, but rest assured they are there if you want to read the rest of the series. Other than the food descriptions, which were cracking me up, they sounded like, I, I'm sorry for the vegans listening, but they sounded like really bad the attempts at, at healthy vegans. All of the the protein, the soy protein this, and fake this thing and fake that thing. Other than the food seemed to be kind of like earthling food recreated. That When Juliet had that moment of wanting to go back home, that was the only real kind of flash oh no wait there was one more when miller was talking about his upbringing but there weren't many moments when the characters who were in a very artificial what sounded like a very uncomfortable living situation you didn't really see them or hear them talking about wanting to be somewhere else yeah holden was talking about uh at one point in time does he ever want to go back to earth and he's like no because i like being out here in space well why do you like i think naomi asked him why do you like being out here in space well because you know this is the the wild west you know this is this is my my cowboy ish this is me being out in the in the solar system and you know it's beautiful being out here among the stars and that sort of thing i mean some people just like they like to be out in the open I will go back to when I was a kid growing up in Minnesota and there was this show on TV, which I'm sure you've heard about called little house on the prairie. <laughs> oh, I think I heard about that. Yeah. yeah. Little house on the prairie was based on a real person, a real family. And they did end up in Minnesota at one point in time, which is why every kid that grew up in Minnesota knew little house on the prairie. I actually had a little sister, so she had all the books and one summer I was bored. So I read through all of the books and then Subsequently, like the next year, we took a family vacation and we went to Wisconsin and then out to South Dakota and we hit uh, Walnut Grove along the way. And so we hit all the places that Laura Ingalls Wilder was. The thing behind the books there is Laura's dad had this wandering foot and just needed to go out and, and do something else rather than stay 
in place. And I think a lot of people are like that. And I think that's what Holden is like specifically. Uh, Alex, I think he just likes being a pilot. He's like the galaxy's best pilot and he just loves being a pilot. Amos is just loyal. He's loyal to Naomi to start with, but then he becomes loyal to the crew of the Rossinati. And so that is where he is. He's not there because it's the Rossinati. He's there because he's loyal to Holden and Alex and Naomi. And Naomi is there because she feels like this is the best place for her to make a difference. She's incredibly talented. She's probably the best engineer in the galaxy. And yet uh, she just wants to do more and wants to be part of more because of her history with the OPA and family history. What part of the book stuck with you the most? Oh, I identified with Jim Holden quite a bit. He's this, he's this cowboy that got uh, basically fired from the um, space forces of the earth because he hit his commanding officer. And then he ends up on this literally ice hauler. That's what they call the can't, the ice hauler. Uh, and just kind of, failing upwards to his level of incompetence sort of thing. But he's really capable. He really is capable. Especially he, as a, a, the leader aspect of it. People follow him. They trust him. Yeah, he's a great leader. People do trust him. And so he's making a lot of decisions. But sometimes he makes wrong decisions. And you have at one point in the book that Miller, Miller basically says, no, no, you're not going to send this message out. No. Why can I? He asked Miller, Holden asked Miller. And Miller tells him, well, that's because you don't shoot people and you're going to have to shoot me in order to send that message out, which would be bad for the entire galaxy. So he thinks about it and later says, no, I'm not going to send it because you're right. It would make us a giant target and everybody would come and try to kill us at that point in time to take away the the um, proto, -monocle, proto molecule, which we have on board. And you're right, Miller, you're right. And so he doesn't always make the great initial decision but he's not always acting in the initial decision and that's the importance of holden as a character is he's able to take into account other people's thoughts of people he trusts and then make the right decision at that point i wish i could identify with more with the women in the book but i'm not really as uh, as badass as they are to be honest every single character in this book is a badass i mean even amos who Amos is just this guy that swears and, and is the grease monkey engineer that gets things done sort of thing. But even he, he has this great uh, capability to him. He makes snap decisions in the moment that's to everybody's benefit. Might not be the best decision at the time, but it turns out to be a pretty good decision as things goes on. And he's very protective of everybody. So Really, you're not going wrong with any of these characters, but all these characters are faulty, too. So there's not one of these characters that is gold-plated. They all have faults. And I think even with the, the huge world-building that they did, I think it's the characters grounded. Even though it was kind of slow in the beginning, for me, it never felt like too much. And it could have. It easily could have. There's so many going on, but it didn't feel overwhelming. Yeah, there are aspects of the book that's very techno-genre focused and action adventure focused but what grounds the book is the development of the characters and making the characters real for everybody so i appreciated that it's not just this sci-fi book matter of fact i'm trying to get my daughter to read it and my dad my dad loves mysteries he loves detective stuff and i'm thinking he's going to identify with miller if he can get past the sci-fi stuff 
my daughter who actually is a comic book fan and a sci-fi fan, but she, when she reads, she's more of the mystery romance sort of thing. So I don't know if she's going to like this or not, but she orders like three or four books a week. So she is a speed reader. There is a romance in there. Yeah, it but takes not a while to start, but there's one. Yeah. It's just not the romance that uh, she would appreciate. So SP, would you go into space? Would you go and live on a different planet willingly? Oh, I wanted to be the leader of the first manned mission to Mars. So that was a visit again to get to my history of going somewhere a week or two. So the the movie The Martian pretty much looks at what I was prepared to do with my life. But I realize now of what's going on that probably the people that we send to Mars aren't coming back for one reason or another. And... Yeah, I think it's a one-way trip, and you have to be prepared for that. You wouldn't be coming back. Like you were saying, not one of these characters really wished to come back to Earth except for Julie Mao. I don't think anybody that would really go to Mars would want to come back. Would you miss it? Yeah, sure. You would miss the beach. You would miss being able to lay out in the sun. You would miss being able to go outside after a rain and just smell that that wet air that humid air uh, that's coming off of uh, freshly um, watered grass and and trees and be able to take long walks in the woods. Yeah, you'd miss all that, but you would go to Mars for a reason. You would go there because you're an adventurous. You'd go there because you wanted to be part of something greater than yourself, that sort of thing. And we'll see. I think I'm about to the point where I'm too old to travel in space, but John Glenn went up when he was 70, so that gives me a little hope. If you could, like tomorrow, go in and live live there, not just go and come back, would you do that? Hmm. I would miss the lake. I really like the lake. I I lived in Colorado for years, and the one thing I missed in Colorado, even though they do have reservoirs and lakes there, I, there's not a lot, and it's very dry up there. Matter of fact, you wake up in the morning, you have what's known as Rocky Mountain crust in your nose, just because it's the humidity is so low up there, and the uh, altitude is is higher and you have a little bit more problems breathing. I mean, altitude sickness is a thing. If you go somewhere and, and you, you live at sea level and you go up to somewhere like Denver, you're going to struggle for the first few days. You're up there until your body starts to adjust. So, But the one thing that I didn't like about there versus everywhere else, and the mountains are beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I don't hate Colorado. But the lack of lakes. You know, I grew up in Minnesota, 10,000 lakes. You know, I that's just me. That's where I eventually see myself retiring is kind of on a lake. And because of that, I, I don't know if I would go to Mars or not. Would I be able to science the stuff out of stuff out there? Yeah, sure. I would love it, but I I would probably always want to come back. So it's an interesting thing that your mind does to you after decades of, of wanting to do something. You're all of a sudden at the place of, well, maybe that's not what I really wanted to do, but younger me would have gone there in a heartbeat. I'm not sure. I definitely thought about it because Stranger in a Strange Land was definitely one of my favorites in high school. And I and part of it was, ooh, not only different countries, different cultures, but a completely different planet. What if there are entities there and we can get to know their culture? That would be great. But I don't think I went, I understood the physicality of being in a place that different. And especially the insideness. I'm really like you. I want the outside. I want water. I want air. I want trees. I know I wouldn't go now. It's an interesting question because a lot of people would for a lot of different reasons. And I just don't see a clear decision for anybody. I mean, you really want to do it and you'd have to know what you're giving up. Or maybe 
you have to not know what you're giving up in order to make the decision and just never know what you're going to miss. Well, and, and ultimately just own your decision once you start to do it. Well, that's a big thing in life. It is. Yeah. And there's a direct expat parallel to that because there are people that move overseas and then they go, oh, I really liked my life back home. Okay, go back. You're good. If you have that kind of environment that you don't want to leave, you can go back to it. But, uh, but some people say, no, I have to do this to prove it to myself. And No, you don't. <laughs> life is this amazing choose your own adventure. And we've told our kids this since they were very little. When the first one started uh, middle school, we told her, look, this is practice for the rest of your life. But when you are a freshman in high school, then, which is roughly when you're 14 years old, that is when you start to make decisions that will affect the rest of your life. So your grades in your freshman year of high school affect your GPA at the end of high school, which will affect your options that are available to you after high school. So your life really starts when you're about 14 and practice starts when you're about 12. And we told them that. And life is full of choices that you make and you have to go through with them. And I could see even leaving to a different culture, different society, different planet, different country, whatever. If you decide to do that early on, that is something that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. You're not going to have the same life as your best friend in high school because they decided to go to college, become a nurse, be in a, uh, a sorority, and then have 2.3 kids in the suburbs driving your, I don't know, either minivan or mom sports car or whatever. So it's it's a choices that you make along the way that get you from point A to point B, yet the people that stay and do that sort of stuff are not necessary. They don't necessarily have the worldwide look and view on things. They don't understand what it's like to be in Europe or to be in Asia or Polynesia or the Caribbean or South Africa or South America. They don't understand that. Whereas the kids that decide to be adventurous or travel or something like that, they, they do get that aspect and they see more of humanity. I, I, I see a difference between people. You don't see people that go off to a travel and then come back and be world-winning architects or doctors or something like that. They, they're mostly more human-to-human based in what they decide to do. So it's just a different aspect of, of the decisions that you make early on in life and whether you choose to pursue them or not and whether you're capable to pursue them or not. And even like places like the UK and Australia, it's very common to do a gap year where after or between high school or whatever the equivalent is in college, they take a year off and they travel. And even just that, that year, even though a lot of that year, granted, is a pretty drunken, fun experience for a lot of them, not all, but a lot, it, they still are exposed to enough. They still experience enough. They still have to be dependent enough while they go through the whole year and figure out how to maneuver where they're going, who they're with, all the, all the kinds of ups and downs of long travel like that has a huge impact on people for the rest of their lives. And I, I kind of wish we had a tradition of that. Yeah. How important it is to have some sort of income to be, or, or money banked up so that you can be able to live that sort of thing. And what you really can do to live and what's your minimum level of being able to survive and, and live and, and that sort of thing. And and some people just don't get it when they live in mom and dad's basement and you get it when you're out there and you have to fend for yourself and make your own decisions and are responsible for those decisions. 
in this context of going to another planet, I mean, that is a, a clear severance of anything that you've learned in your past and you need to uh, be able to make it on your own in one way or the other. Whereas here, there's usually some friends or family that you can ask for help sort of thing. And you're just not going to get that in, in a different planet. I mean, you might be one of 20 people uh, eventually that everybody needs to contribute. I mean, touche to people that want to do it. I have no judgment against people that want to. Right. Well, another thing we told our kids was, you know, at the time we're talking, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, we we told them, look, if you don't realize what you want to do in life, where you want to be or something like that, here's some options. Go be part of the crew on a cruise liner. Go to Disney World and work in the park. You're going to see a lot of different cultures, a lot of different people you're going to experience a whole heck of a lot in, in those sorts of things. Yes, they are um, vacation-based or entertainment-based things, but uh, with cruise ships, you do get to travel. I do realize crew on a cruise ship does not get off at every port. I get that. But you're experiencing the different people, both on crew and the passengers that come through every week, and certainly with somewhere where like Disney World, you're, you're experiencing that as well. I mean, those are kind of safe things to do. As, as a young person in order to get out there and, and see the world and try to decide what you want to do sort of thing. But there are, you know, couch, uh, what is it called? Couch um, sitting or whatever, where, where you rely on different people to, um, to, to travel around. Um, I mean, there's safety uh, can, in consideration and all that, but uh, the United States is a little bit different than Europe and the rest of the world when it comes to, cheap places that you can stay and, and, and travel around on foot and that sort of thing. But uh, that's why I was telling them cruise ships and Disney world would be a good place to start. And you can go from there. So that was our fallback of, okay, you're still making money that you're experiencing stuff and, and you can do it. Neither of, a, well, I wouldn't say that we had one kid that decided to uh, be crew on a cruise on a coastal cruise ship. He lasted a week there before he had to get off. Oh, like motion sickness or just? No, it was the atmosphere on board it. They're harsh work environments to begin with. And if you have people that are uh, really bullying and and really harsh masters sort of thing, it just was not something that he was wanting to put up with. And, And for me, in my history, I've been through stuff like that. So it's no big deal for me. I could do a few months on a coastal cruise ship, no problem. But uh, he needed a little bit more coddling. So this was something that he decided to do. This was not something that I said, you need to go do this. This was like, huh, this would be a great adventure for a summer. I want to go try it out. And it turned out not to be so much for him. But even that trying it out and him realizing that's not what he wanted, that's the learning itself. But even for folks who don't want to physically leave, or let's face it, it's uh, the end of March 2020 right now a lot of us can't can go travel or live in different places so there's there's still a lot of things that we have at our disposal there are books that where you can armchair travel or, or read about people living in other places there's videos there's so many different things that we can tap into to be exposed to other cultures other places and other lifestyles futuristic or present day or past <laughs> so we're really spoiled content wise right now oh we are i am a big fan of a lot of youtube cruising sailboat channels 
And it's interesting that you brought up those a lot of research. First of all, there are those channels that you can go watch, but also every single one of those channels has a bookshelf full of books on how to cruise around the world, how to maintain your boat, how do you uh, travel, the, when to travel the world, that sort of thing. And so it is a lot of research that goes behind trying to do something like that. And now is a great time to do that research. If you can't go anywhere, what are you planning to do? Uh, find out more, learn out more about it, and then make your plans for when the world starts to open back up now. And I realize somebody might be listening to this years down the road, but when the world opens back up, then you can actually start to execute some of those plans. And I will tell you, I will warn you ahead of time that any plan that you make is probably not going to uh, exist longer than when you first start it. But that's the beauty of planning in, in knowing a lot about the subject is you can fall off, fall back on different things of the plan and be able to uh, modify it and then eventually do what you got to do in order to get to your goal that you ultimately might want or might change to. So, but now's a great time to do that research in order to do that. Need to use our time wisely now. Oh, speaking of which, so you read the, you read this book. Are you going to read the rest of them or just stick with the So I bought the, the pack of the first three books and I also bought the audio book for this one uh, because of the timing that I had in, in the fact of what's going on and the fact that I'm working probably more so now than I was beforehand. I decided to do the audiobook mostly, and I watched the episodes as I was listening to the audiobook. So I had the volume down, completely off, muted on the episodes, and I was listening to the book. And it was just an interesting playoff because I could bring out the the aspects of the book to the, the characters online and learn even more about the characters that I was seeing on screen through the book. I, I will admit that it was a focused challenge of trying to maintain focus on what was being read and, and just seeing the visualization, which was something completely different. But uh, it was an interesting way to go about it. Uh, season one of The Expanse is 10 episodes. Season two is 13 episodes. That's uh, 23 hours minus commercials, which fits up almost perfectly to the unabridged uh, audio version of the book. And it, it was an interesting um, experience, especially if you do multiple hours at the same time. Uh, I do have the other two books that I plan on reading, probably not in the same way. Probably will actually sit down and read the, the actual paper copy of the book. But it it was, this was the first time that I tried to do it. And this it was a good decision, I think, because to do it this way with this material, because uh, of the closeness of both the series and the novel and the fact that the series was, it, it brought out different aspects of things that just weren't in the first book. So it made the experience better for me, but I don't know if anybody else would want to do that. That is kind of genius. I wish I had thought about that because I, like I said, I watched the first episode and I was going to try to sprinkle in more episodes as I was reading it, but I was running out of time to finish the book before we talked. So I was like, ah, so I haven't actually done that. Um, I think for me, although the book is was written really, really well, I think I might just switch over to the series because I definitely was more pulled into the characters. I like the visualness of the world that they were building in the TV series. I think I might switch over. There are entire podcasts. We have one on the network that I'm on, the Guinea Geek Network, that are about the expanse. But there are podcasts that either go through the books 
or through the TV shows. There's ones that do both. And uh, there's just a lot of information. If you want to find somebody that wants to talk about this stuff, you can find somebody that wants to talk about this stuff. It's it's not, uh, it, there's a lot of fans out there, basically. It's not <laughs> something that's under a rock somewhere. And when I said it was the Game of Thrones of sci-fi, it really kind of is. It, it doesn't, you're not dealing with killing off all the characters that you love all the time, but it's that sort of, and I hate to use this term, but world building, and because it, it's really universe building, but it's world building, uh, amazing. And if you can get through the first book, I think you're you're going to be great. And if you're watching this series, I have to warn you: get through episode four first, because or don't watch episode four first, but watch episodes one through four. If you're not into it at the end of episode four, it's not for you. But if you're having trouble with it and you get to episode four and you're like, Oh, I'm all in, then this is definitely a series for you. Really? Cause I thought the one episode I saw really pulled me in. So I, are you saying it gets even better after episode four? This series gets better every episode. There is not a single episode that you're like, why did I watch this? Or that wasn't as good as the episode before. Every single episode gets better than the one before. It's I've never seen it in the history of TV. It's three seasons now that I've seen. I know the fourth season is available on Prime. I have not seen it yet, mostly because I was watching a or I was podcasting on a show that had five other shows on it. So there was a lot of time that went into that every week where I had to watch five to six hours of TV every week just to do the podcast called the Starling Tribune that is over now. So I now am trying to get through my back catalog of stuff to watch and to read and to listen to. And, and I plan to get to season four of the expanse really quickly. And I've heard that it keeps up everything. It's different because it was produced for streaming versus TV from what I've heard, but it is still just as good or better. Yeah. Well, my husband went through the books and the series quite a while ago. And so I saw his excitement and I saw the lack of sleep while he was trying to, to watch to and read too much of it. So I, I get, I, I saw that momentum pick up in him and I'm ah, a little, a little gone, <laughs> but, um, but no, I'm glad to see that. And normally with books, I like the extra information that are in books versus a movie or a TV show, but I definitely do think it's going to be the opposite for me. And it sounds like for you that's true too. With that in mind, why are you going to read the other books instead of just going with Oh, because I do like that extra information. I picked up a couple of few things that were extra in the Leviathan Wakes that I hadn't caught up with the series. And I think I'll catch some stuff as I go forward. Plus, it's always good to have something to read you know, just to wind down and relax at the end of the day. And I haven't done that for a while. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of weird, I guess. I, I like stuff on TV like Cosmos, and Cosmos has its third season out now. And I say third season and third season over decades because the original one was out like in, in the 80s. And season two was 2014, and this is season three right now. It's on Nat Geo for those that are looking for it. And I'm, I watch Nova. I used to watch the Science Channel all the time, but it's not part of my cable package. So I, I just don't get as much as I used to. But I usually like to either watch one of those episodes before I go to bed or start reading and uh, get involved into a long-term reading project. And 
And sometimes I, I start falling asleep and I got to go back and read a few pages, but it's a great time for me to just to wind down and relax at the end of the day. So yeah, that's why I intend on continuing to read this. I have bookshelves behind me that have several of the series that I've read throughout the years, and this will be one that goes on there. Another series that's kind of like this is called the Honorverse series, and that gets way too far deep into the geopolitical stuff. But it is very similar to The Expanse. It's just a few more hundred years in the future. So you're dealing with multiple solar systems and space travel on a whole new level. But you definitely see societies through a different level of of uh, the Honorverse. And if you're interested in that aspect of science fiction, I might say that uh, Honorverse is probably a better fit for everybody. But it is even more technical as well. So you, you got to kind of have to want to get through it in order to get through it. But uh, I think The Expanse is also another great series. So I, I intend on going through it. And if I stall a few books in and I, I do the same thing as you and just say, oh, screw it, I just want to watch the series as it unfolds, then I might do that. And you actually reminded me as you were talking about Cosmos, I was thinking of this TV show when I was a kid. I remember seeing it and all I remembered was Big Blue. And I just looked it up and I've tried to find this a few times over the years. But the information has not been online, and I actually finally found it. I don't know if you remember from your childhood, Big Blue Marble. Did you ever see that kid's TV show? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for some reason, that just the, the, the visualness of leaving Earth and that kind of thing, that really captured my attention as a kid. Yeah, a lot of stuff from our, our childhood is coming back because I guess entertainment and Hollywood aren't that creative, and we have to go back to stuff that we're – familiar with versus making new stuff unfortunately i know right (laughs) sort of bizarre but yeah (laughs) yeah oh my gosh okay well let's wrap this up where can if the listeners want to find you and what you do online where are the best places for them to do that you can go to guineageek.com i'm on several different podcasts right now only three i'm down to three which is uh, the guineageek.com show. Down to three. I know, I know. At one point in time, I was doing six or seven a week. It was crazy. And I find it hard to do even three a week now. So I'm I'm wondering what kind of uh, podcasting superhuman I was back in the day. But yeah, I do the guineageek.com show, which I go over space-related news every week. We talk about space telescopes, what's going on with SpaceX and space exploration in real, real science over there. That's my aspect to it. Stephen and Chris cover different entertainment geeky or tech things and then i'm on better podcasting which is a podcast about podcasting for specifically for like hobbyists people that uh, are not corporate that sort of thing but we we do cover all ranges of stuff on there and then i do legends of shield which is a podcast on the television show agents of shield which is having its last season coming up here in a month or two and then uh the general marvel comic universe so the big Marvel Cinematic Universe that ended with uh, Infinity War and Endgame that uh, was all covered on Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. So it's been a fun seven years on that. Now that you're quote-unquote down to three podcasts, are you tempted to start another one? I'm always tempted to start another one. Matter of fact, this uh, was actually a topic that I considered uh, going chapter by chapter in the books and, and making a podcast over it. But I'm not at the point where I have enough free time to do that yet so i want to make sure that i take care of a good home life balance home life work balance i guess where i'm actually able to do stuff like mowing the lawn before it's dark and have to mow it with a flashlight and that sort of thing so yeah i'm 
I'm try, trying to be a little bit better, well-rounded person. And that's one of my golden rules of hobby podcasting, by the way, which I did in episode 50 a few years ago, was if you're a hobby podcaster, don't do more than two podcasts because you're just not going to have enough time to do anything. Yes, you might think you're cranking out content, but you're just not doing it right. You're not doing the correct promotion. You're not giving your topic enough service. You're not giving your content enough service. And you're not paying enough attention to your co-hosts if you happen to have them. So, yeah, I'm definitely an advocate of going down to uh, two podcasts or no more than two podcasts for a hobby podcaster. And, and there are reasons behind that. But anyway, but thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on our book show. Yeah, It's been an incredible honor. I am. I, w- I was shocked when you asked me. So I'm like, okay, how's this going to link in? We talked about it for a few, a few weeks and we finally decided on a, a path forward. And I'm so glad we actually did this and um, I hope you had fun on your walks and I hope you were able to digest some additional content. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was fun because I, I, science fiction is something I would watch in TV shows, but more so movies, but it's not something I gravitate towards in books. And I like being to try different genres. It was really fun. And the futuristic expectation. So I'm really happy that we did this. Me too. I've been waiting for my moment And I've been howling at the moon Wasn't that otherworldly? I can't stop with the bad space jokes. What can I say? I want to say thank you is what I can say to SP for having this really long conversation. Now that you've made it to the end, I can tell you that this conversation happened last March right about when the first lockdown in Germany happened, which is where I was located at that time. I am now in the capital of Albania, a small country right next to Italy. And so, yeah, there were a lot of technical issues in that apartment that I recorded that, thus the incredibly long time it has taken me to figure out how to get this sounding okay. Anyway, thank you to SP for being so patient and not wondering if I had completely lost the episode. I have not. Thank you also for the really interesting conversation. This was a two-hour-long conversation that we had. We went into some other things that didn't quite fit into the episode, but that were really fun to discuss. So thank you, SP, for the really long, fun conversation that we had, for inspiring me to read the book, and now to start watching the TV show, and for just opening up my mind to a a sci-fi world that I had really been neglecting for quite some time. Also, thank you to Damon Castillo. The music that you've been hearing in this podcast is all his. You can find more of his music um, and other information. I was going to say concert dates, but we're still, you know, in a pandemic. So mm. anyway, and his other information at DamonCastillo.com. Links to everything we talked about in this podcast will be at StephFuccio.com forward slash Geopats books or There's a link in the show notes that you can probably see in your podcast app. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Geopat's Books. I am so excited that you're here and I appreciate you sharing this episode with anyone that you think is bookishly interested in what we talked about today. Thank you so much and more soon. I've been wasting all of my time Standing at the back of your line Trying not to lose my mind Yeah When all I'll ever be is
is your sometime guy. Well, I've been waiting for my moment. And I've been howling at the moon. Well, I've been living with this torment. Cause there's nothing else my heart can do. Standing at the back of your line, trying not to lose my mind. When all I'll ever be is your sometime guy, your sometime guy. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, your sometime guy. Down like the man I am. You pull the string and make me dance. Oh, I can't believe the shape you got me in. All these thoughts could drive me mad. Well, I've been wasting all of my time standing at. Sometimes, yeah.